The best and the longest mixed martial arts careers are rarely just plain sailing. Often they comprise a roller coaster of wins, losses, setbacks, and comebacks. Just like with any good roller coaster, though, the higher the climb, often the steeper the fall. Fortunes can change in an instant. Sometimes a single fight can signal the end of your ride. With that in mind, I'm Balian from MMA on Point, and today we're looking at 10 times we knew the dream was over. Number 10, Tony Ferguson. The prevailing mood around September's UFC 279 main event was actually quite positive. Nate Diaz, a veritable legend among fans and his peers, got to do what so many before him didn't, fight out his contract with an emphatic victory and become one of the biggest free agents in combat sports. Spare a thought, though, for Tony Ferguson. It's incredible to think that it's been a full five years since the former Ultimate Fighter winner lifted interim UFC gold, seemingly booking a date with destiny against Habib Nurmagomedov in the process. With his quirky, unorthodox style and predilection for snatching chokes from all angles, T-Ferg was often muted as the kryptonite for Khabib. Even though fate intervened an incredible five times, it always felt like Tony would eventually get his shot at dethroning the king. But time waits for no man, not even a boogeyman. Unfortunately, the losses started piling up, and with every fight, Ferguson looked a little less of a threat to the division's elite, let alone the mighty Habib. With many writing him off after Michael Chandler turned his face into a human boglin, for an all-too-brief moment it seemed like El Kakui would have a final chance to shine against a semi-active, possibly mentally checked out Nate Diaz. Sadly, all the Diaz fight did was confirm what we already knew. While Ferguson had some success beating up Nate's lead leg, his performance, while spirited certainly, was far removed from his days as interim champ. His neck getting trapped in a guillotine in the fourth round was emblematic of Tony's fall. While he insists he's not done, his performance against Diaz has some fans saying otherwise. Number 9. Mark Kerr Obviously, you don't get a nickname like the Smashing Machine for arranging flowers. <laughs> Why do that? It's just funny. Mark Kerr built a fearsome reputation on the back of his appearance at Brazil's World Valley Tudo Championship 3, beating one opponent so badly that he literally crawled out of the ring to escape. The Smashing Machine's ascension really was meteoric. He won back-to-back -back UFC tournaments in a combined time of 5 minutes and 10 seconds, and then went undefeated in his first six fights in Japan's Pride FC. Kerr's fall, however, would somehow be just as epic as his rise. Bit like Sauron, innit? Part of the problem was that he wasn't particularly fond of violence. You know, I don't go out and try to punch a guy's face in. You know, sometimes I have to. As he struggles to reconcile his pacifist nature with the job requirement of sticking his chin into dude's eye sockets, he was also battling well-documented personal demons. A toxic relationship with his relapsed alcoholic partner and his own substance abuse issues leading to an eventual opioid overdose in 1999 were all detailed in HBO's sobering documentary, The Smashing Machine. The cur that fought heavily outmatched pro wrestler Kazuyuki Fujita in the 2000 Pride Grand Prix was a shadow of his former self. What should have been a massacre ended up being the biggest upset of the tournament. Forgivable losses to top-ranked heavyweights Igor Bovchanshin and Heath Herring followed, but it was clear that Kerr's mind and body were failing him. What was supposed to be another gimme fight against a shoot-style pro wrestler and MMA journeyman Yoshihisha Yamamoto ended in catastrophe, with a sloppy-looking Kerr knocking himself clean out on a takedown attempt and proving beyond all doubt that his days as an elite-level heavyweight were probably over. Number 8. 
BJ Penn. The Prodigy is a tough moniker to live up to, but for BJ Penn, it fit like a glove. A lightweight and not particularly big one, Penn made his professional debut in the UFC and competed from featherweight to heavyweight across a frankly ludicrous 18-year career, where he won light and welterweight titles along the way. From his first bout with George St. Pierre at UFC 58 to his third fight against Frankie Edgar at the Tough 19 finale, Penn completed a 15-fight run comprising of only opponents who had either held or fought for a UFC championship. With a resume like that, it's only right that Penn's record ended up a little messy, whether that was down to the sheer number of elite opponents he faced or his infamous motivation issues. While it wasn't uncommon to see Penn losing, it was the third fight with fellow legend Frankie Edgar that let us know we'd seen the last of the mythical, motivated BJ. Already two down in their trilogy, the nip and tuck nature of the 2010 lightweight title duology had nonetheless left the door open to a trilogy bout in 2014. With a 19-month break to reinvent himself and drop into featherweight for the very first time, fans were left on tenterhooks for yet another reinvention of the Hawaiian hero. Sadly, it wasn't to be. It was a reinvention, but not exactly a good one. Penn looked unusually listless at 145 pounds and a million miles away from the fighter who'd taken Edgar to the judges' scorecards on two previous occasions. It really was a sad day for old-school UFC fans. Number 7. Johnny Hendricks. When Johnny Hendricks burst onto the scene seemingly out of nowhere, the UFC's 170-pound division sat up and took notice. He'd made a name for himself in the WEC, competing in the promotion's last ever welterweight bout, actually, before it turned its focus solely towards the lower weight classes. The UFC swooped in, signing Big Rig just five fights into his professional career. Now, that might not seem like headline news today, but it certainly set tongues wagging in 2009. A multiple-time Division I wrestling champion at Oklahoma State with dim Mac hands, Hendricks tore up the division en route to the title. UFC goal would prove to be his undoing, though. After coming out on the wrong side of one of the most contentious judges' decisions in a UFC title fight against George St. Pierre, of all people, Hendricks fought back-to-back five-round wars with Robbie Lawler. It's cliche to say that a certain type of fight can take years off of a fighter's career, but I don't think it's unfair to say that the 10 rounds Hendricks and Lawler shared took a tangible toll on both men. Although he bounced back with a win against Matt Brown, Hendricks would drop his next three bouts, missing weight twice as well. Hoping a move to middleweight would revitalize his career, things went from bad, well, to worse, really, for Johnny, and he faced off with Tim Bosch, a fairly middle-of-the-road middleweight with an 11-10 UFC record, going into their June 2017 fight. Incredibly, Hendricks came in 188 pounds, two pounds over the middleweight limit, before ending up on the Barbarian's highlight reel, courtesy of a second-round head kick. As was noted by many at the time, Hendricks' downturn started right around the time USADA began testing UFC athletes. Whether there's anything to that or whether he'd simply had one too many in-cage wars, the Bosch fight was a clear indication that the big rig had run out of gas. Number 6. Forrest Griffin it's tough to describe how fierce the rivalry between the UFC and Pride fans were back in the day. At its peak, Forrest Griffin and Mauricio Hua were the promotional poster boys, so when the latter signed with the UFC and drew the former for his debut, there were serious bragging rights at stake. After all, in 2005, Shogun had won Pride's middleweight Grand Prix, cementing himself as one of the best power
pound-for-pound fighters in the world. And in contrast, as Pride fans pretty much always wanted to point out, in 2005, Griffin had won a reality TV show. Griffin's victory over an admittedly injured Hua, though, sent shockwaves through the MMA world, cementing him as a legit contender at 205 pounds and catapulted him into a title fight where he captured gold against Quinton Rampage Jackson. Forrest's time at the top, though, would be short-lived. He'd suffer a pair of consecutive knockout losses to Rashad Evans and Anderson Silva, exhibiting erratic behavior after the latter before testing positive for anti-anxiety drugs in the aftermath. The UFC made efforts to rehabilitate Griffin's image, booking him against former champions Tito Ortiz and Rich Franklin before a second meeting with Hua was set for UFC 134. If the Brazilian was banged up for their first dance, by 2011 he was being held together by duct tape. Still, it didn't stop him dishing out a brutal shellacking to avenge the ignominy of his UFC debut. With injuries piling up, the Hua fight served to highlight how gun-shy the once scrappy brawler had really become. Griffin did have one more fight before retirement, edging out old rival Ortiz in their trilogy bout. Number 5. Brock Lesnar There have been precious few people able to make the kind of impression on mixed martial arts in such short order as Brock Lesnar. Arguably the most gifted heavyweight amateur wrestler of his generation, Lesnar went on to become one of the biggest stars in pro wrestling with the WWE, even signing with the NFL's Minnesota Vikings because Big Brock does what Big Brock wants, I guess. It wasn't long before The Beast Incarnate set his sights on MMA, and of course Brock being Brock, he was UFC champion just four fights later. Was he protected and fast-tracked to the title due to his immense box office potential? Well, absolutely. But when push comes to shove, he also did the business against some of the sport's best as well. When it came to solving the riddle of Brock Lesnar though, there was one clear pattern of behavior. He didn't really like getting hit. I mean, who does really? His tendency to turn away from heavy fire is a natural reaction that most fighters unlearn during their apprenticeship, but analysts had picked this up and so had Cain Velasquez and he totally exploited that flaw perfectly, crushing Lesnar when the pair squared off for his heavyweight title. Battles with mononucleosis, diverticulitis and a perforated intestine hampered Lesnar's title reign and returned to the cage, as he would later state in an ESPN interview while he'd physically recovered in time for his December 2011 bout with Alistair Overeem, something was lacking mentally. Whether it was a mental block, Overeem's brutal knees, kicks and punches to his surgically repaired abdomen, or a combination of all of it, it was clear that Brock's decision to return to the WWE was probably the right one. Number 4. Rashad Evans A charismatic Ultimate Fighter winner who scored a KO of the year over Chuck Liddell and went on to capture the UFC light heavyweight title, the sky looked to be the limit for Rashad Evans. Unfortunately for Sugar, his reign came at a time when the division was at its most top-heavy and was lost in the shuffle as the belt played musical chairs between seven different champions in just four years. After then dropping the belt to Lyoto Machida in 2009 in one of the most memed moments in MMA history, Evans put together a four-fight winning streak to earn a second title title shot at 145. Like many of his peers though, Evans came up short against the illustrious John Jones, who was in the midst of his untouchable years as UFC champion. Rashad would continue to campaign though, but with mixed results. He beat Chael Sonnen and old rival Tito Ortiz while dropping bouts to Rogerio Noguera and Ryan Bader. A 2016 clash with Glover Teixeira would prove to be his undoing though. His signature speed and reflexes seemed nowhere to be found, and the former champ was iced by the future champ, 
in just under two minutes. He had a brief visit to the middleweight division, but it only served to produce diminishing returns. While Evans continues to compete sporadically to this day and is a popular member on many an analyst desk, the image of him face down in Glover's shadow captured the moment his dream died. Number three, Matt Hughes. Matt Hughes is one of the sport's more unsung legends. He's often outshone by many of his more charismatic peers while quietly compiling one of the best records in early 2000s MMA. To say that the sport passed him by would be unkind. He simply ran into the greatest of all time, GSP, three times and lost two of them. While the baton had clearly been passed, as the old song goes, a country boy can survive and Hughes seemed far from dumb. Few expected the former champ's next outing to be a late-notice fight in the UK against fringe contender Thiago Alves, though. Hughes had stepped in at the 11th hour to save the seemingly doomed UFC 85 card as a favour to the promotion after it began leaking marquee names. Despite being tabbed as a heavy favourite, he was unable to manhandle his much younger opponent, eventually falling to a crushing flying knee in the second round. It was a phenomenal whirlwind of misfortune. Alves had almost been forced to withdraw himself due to an ankle injury just two weeks out, turning up with a heavily taped ankle unable enough to cut the weight to make 170 pounds. Then, to make things worse, the gruesome finish had seen Hughes collapse backwards onto his own leg and he tore both his MCL and PCL. As anyone in their late 30s with a history of knee injuries will tell you, that kind of injury is a game changer, if not a game over. Hughes did embark on something of an elder statesman tour to cap off his MMA career, but the Alves bout served as a reminder that he'd most likely left the best of himself in the cage with GSP. Number two, Vandalay Silva. If Vandalay had fought Chuck Liddell in the summer of 2006, it could have been the biggest fight in MMA history to that point. While the pair eventually did meet in late 2007, the fact that they had both lost their two previous fights took some of the shine off what would have been a monumentous occasion. Still, the fight was a banger, and even in defeat, Vandalay showed that he could stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the best of them. There was something of an elephant in the room, though. The silver we saw in the UFC was somewhat smaller and less aggressive than the head-stomping axe murderer from Pride, the land of soccer kicks and DIY drug testing. Vandy lost two of his next three before making a well-advised drop to 185 pounds, getting off on the right foot with a win over top contender Mike Bisping. Fans were salivating over a potential middleweight title run. Rematches with Dan Henderson, and Vitor Belfort, or even a hot-shotted UFC versus Pride super fight against former teammate Anderson Silva. When Silva drew Chris Lieben, it was seen as nothing more than a stepping stone fight to get the axe murderer in the mix at middleweight. The crippler was a tough, hard-nosed brawler, but that was Vandalay's world. Surely the result was a foregone conclusion. Well, Chris Lieben didn't get that memo. After getting buzzed in the opening exchange, the crippler bit down on his gum shield and melted Silva with a series of piston-like uppercuts from the clinch. Vandalay would eventually end his UFC career on a high with an all-time classic with Brian Stan, but the night Chris Lieben beat him at his own game was most definitely the start of his long ride into the sunset. And number one, Robbie Lawler. Violent Bob might just be the best value-for-money fighter in the history of the sport, an honours graduate of Just Hit The Guy University. Lawler was a proponent of the do-what-you-love, love-what-you-do ethos. It just so happened that the thing he loved doing was punching people in the face. 
In fairness, that's not a bad trait for an MMA fighter, and over 21 glorious blood-stained years, it gifted us a plethora of incredible fights, knockouts, and comebacks from the ruthless one. From going three and five in strike force to making an unlikely UFC comeback and an even unlikelier welterweight title run in the twilight of his career, Lawler taught us the folly of writing him off time and time again. Regrettably though, not even a superhuman like Ruthless Rob can outrun Father Time, and 20 years is a long shift in the fight game. Lawler had just started to look gun-shy against Colby Covington in their August 2019 headliner, but the man that fought Neil Magny in the near-empty Apex Arena was practically a ghost of the berserker who'd recently terrorized the welterweight division. Without taking anything away from Magny's near-flawless performance, it was clear from the early offing that Lawler was a spent force. His days as a threat at the top end of the division were slowly disappearing into the rearview mirror. There we go. Never stop dreaming, folks. One day you might make it all the way to MMA legend status. I do know at least one person who is living out their dreams, though. Luke Taylor. He's an editor for this channel. Does it get any better than that? Thanks for editing this video, Luke, you big tree. You can check him out on social media at calltome underscore for more of his work. Bit like Brad Wharton, the Cage Warriors commentator and certified MMA encyclopedia. He actually wrote this list. You can give him some love by checking him out at MMABrad48. Got my ride or die boy Ben Rosette back on this one with the MMA OP intro tune. Thank you once again again, sir. He does do a bunch of other music on his Spotify and Twitter if you want to check him out at Ben Rosette. I guess today's topic was a bit of a downer, but these guys are all legends, really, and taking a look back at their careers, I think it only highlights that. Nothing lasts forever, except YouTube comments, so go ahead and leave one down here and let me know what you thought. Chuck us a like if you enjoyed the history lesson, and oh yeah, don't forget to hit subscribe. We do free videos a week about MMA. I've been Balian. Follow me at Balian on pretty much all social media. See you in the next one.